Chapter 31 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Fraser Shepherdson, Melbourne. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 31. Natifbur, which had been the home and stronghold of Kara Natif's ancestry ever since the dim old days when it had been a fortress of logs fenced about by triple stockades of outward-pointing, sloping stakes, was now a curious mixture of medieval castle and 18th-century pleasure house. It stood on the topmost rise of a promontory about 500 feet high, which jutted out between a very considerable river and an inconsiderable tributary which joined its sluggish flow to the main stream about seven miles from the broad entrance into the Baltic. For the rest, the vast forest-clad regions which lay south and east and west of it, and the long sandy reaches to the north, were a sort of debatable ground between the Russian and the German empires. Most of the princess's ancestors had died fighting one or other of the two encroaching despotisms, as occasion demanded, and the inhabitants of the region, foresters, huntsmen, charcoal burners, small farmers, and fishermen, still hated both with a cordial impartiality. The long northern summer was still in the midmost height of its glory. The forests and the vast, interspersed stretches of meadow and cornland were like dark green oceans dotted with islands of gold and emeralds, and the sands were golden too. The ripples of the shallow sea, like long lines of frosted silver, and the waters of the Baltic beyond, almost as smooth as a sea of ice, glittered with a million ripples. The older portion of the castle, the high, round keep, and the thick, crumbling walls, flanked at every corner and angle as they climbed round the sides of the headland, were flanked with round watchtowers, all ivy and moss-grown, like the rest of the ruin, and grey with the age of many centuries. Below the remains of the great outer bastions, and fronting a magnificent sweep of the great, gleaming river, fringed to its edge with dusky lines of giant pines, and yet divided from the forest by flower-covered terraces and smooth green lawns sloping away into the gloom of the wilderness, was the modern schloss built of red bricks that had been burned over three centuries before, turreted at the corners and roofed with tiles blackened and moss-grown as old as the bricks. It was here that Kara Natif had brought her strangely one husband, and her no less strangely invited guests, present and to come, in order that she might, as she believed, enjoy the complete fruition at once of her love for the man that she loved, and her revenge on the woman whom, in a sense, he loved better than herself, and, bleak and ghastly as these northern wildernesses were when once the shroud of winter fell over them, they were very beautiful now, with a weird and sombre beauty, which no southern landscape can show. In a word, the scene exactly suited both the mood and beauty of the woman who owned everything, but the sea as far as the eye could reach from the topmost tower of Natifberg. According to the old custom of the land, Princess Kara and her husband occupied separate sleeping chambers, communicating with each other by a curtained archway. Very early in the morning of the third day after their arrival, in fact, soon after the brief northern night had ended, she was lying awake with many thoughts revolving in her mind when she heard her husband's voice in the next room speaking in Spanish, a language which she of course understood, 
but which he had never used in converse with her. The words came slowly and brokenly, with little intervals of silent, deep breathing between them. But the first few that she had heard were quite enough to bring the blood to her cheeks, and the fire to her eyes. The truth was that, like nearly all men who have passed a great part of their lives in the silences and solitudes of the outlands of the world, Headley Simons had contracted the habit of talking to himself, which strongly conduces to sleep-talking, and, curiously enough, yet by no means singularly, he never spoke but one language in his sleep, and that was Spanish. Oh, gracia, gracissima. These were the words which flushed her cheeks and kindled her eyes. She sat up in bed and listened with tensely strained ears. There was a little pause, and he went on again, in those words slow and broken, yet for her fatally distinct, Thou knowest that I love thee and thee alone. Thou alone art the love of my heart, the light of my eyes, the star of my life. Shall I tell thee again that I married her only to get possession of thy sweet self, and obtain vengeance on that husband of thine who has ruined me? It was the easiest way, and... Bah! What matters another crime or two? He is coming here, lured by the knowledge of thy sweet presence, coming to his death, for we shall kill him. But it must be she that will kill him. She and that evil-eyed uncle of thine shall kill him. The guilt shall be theirs, and the penalty of it. Then we shall be free, and all these lands shall be mine, and in this beautiful wilderness, far away from the world, we will taste the joys of a new paradise. By this time Princess Kara was out of bed. A morning wrapper girdled round her, and soft, noiseless slippers of down on her feet. She was white now to the lips, and her eyes were blazing and black with anger. She went to a splendid black old oak cabinet, which nearly covered the end wall of the room, ran her fingers quickly over the apparently solid wood at one end of it about five feet from the floor, and presently a little panel flew out. She put her hand into the space behind, and drew out a richly chased silver box, about four inches square. She touched a spring at one of the corners, and the lid slid off. Inside were eight tiny stoppered bottles of clearest crystal. She took out the seventh and looked at it against the light. It was three parts full of a very pale greenish liquid, the famous, or rather infamous, Aquatofana, which, with the other deadly liquids in the case, had been handed down by her ancestors from the time of the Borgias. What she had done had occupied the space of only a few moments, and, meanwhile, she had heard more softly spoken words coming brokenly from the sleeper's lips, and they were such as only served to strengthen the deadly resolve which she had taken. And so I have loved and married a traitor. A traitor who has outwitted me, moreover, and used me, me, Karin Atif, as a mere means to an end. He has not only cheated me, but he has dishonoured me as well. There can be no forgiveness for that, and no traitor ever entered the halls of Natif Berg and left them alive. It shall not be for me, the last of the race, to break the tradition. The words were not spoken or even whispered. They only ran like so many lightning flashes through her mind as she moved noiselessly towards the curtained archway. Headley Simons was lying a little on his right side with his head back and his left arm thrown up over it. Yes, it would be quite safe, 
ran the unspoken words again. It will be the usual verdict. Heart failure. She looked down for a moment on the dark, strong, almost grimly handsome face of a man who had inspired her so strangely with the only real love of her life. But hers was a nature whose love is very swiftly turned to hate, and she hated him now with a hate that nothing but the sacrifice of his life could quench. Again his lips opened in movement. Gracia, gracissima. Her eyes blackened deeper, and her teeth clenched harder. She drew the stopper out of the vial with the little finger of her left hand, just as a practised chemist would do, let a couple of drops fall into the palm of her hand, quickly replaced the stopper, and then laid her hand softly over the sleeper's mouth and nose. He drew one deep breath, his eyes opened, and stared horribly at her for a moment, and a shudder ran through his frame, his jaw dropped, and he was dead. As she turned away from the bed to go back to her own room and replace the terrible poison, the curtains parted and Jenna Halkine stood before her, fully dressed, his face death white and his luminous eyes blazing with what seemed to her a supernatural light. For once in her life, she was taken completely off guard by this utterly unexpected apparition. Dr. Halkine, she exclaimed in a voice which she vainly tried to keep steady. What are you doing here? Here in my bedchamber. It is an outrage. What have you been doing in that other chamber? He said in a perfectly even, passionless voice, putting his hand quickly on her forehead, bending her head back a little and looking down into her fixed, wide-opened eyes. She struggled hard against the subtle, swiftly acting influence that was overcoming her, but it was no use. Her tongue stiffened and the word of protest would not come. Gently, irresistibly, he forced her back into the room where her husband lay dead. I saw you, he went on. I saw you with the eyes which are not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Eyes to which nothing is opaque. You have killed him. A life more or less in the world does not matter, but you have killed more than him. You have destroyed more than his one life. You have destroyed for the present, at least it may be for many years, perhaps even beyond the scope of this life of mine, the hope of our great work. Without the money he promised and would have given the greatest project ever conceived by human minds must come to nothing. For that at least you are worthy of death, and you shall die. Die as you have killed him. Give me that bottle. He took the little phial from her unresisting hand. Now lie there beside him, for this shall be the couch of your death bridal. She employed the last remains of will force that was left to her to resist him, but the influence was already too strong upon her. It melted away under the searching fires of those terrible eyes. The hand was still upon her forehead, and as it pressed, she yielded. Then, with a quick movement of his hand, he caught hold of her limp, yielding form, and laid it on the bed beside the corpse of the man, who but a few minutes before had been her husband. As her head fell back on the pillow, he put his right hand on her forehead again for a moment, and drew it down swiftly yet softly over her face. Her eyes closed and her lips parted. Sleep, worker of evil. You who have interrupted the progress of the good work. 
Sleep until the awakening of another life you shall learn the full extent of the evil that you have wrought. Her eyes closed in the hypnotic sleep which was seen to change into one which most men believe has no wakening, until the last trump calls up the sleepers from the land and sea to face the final judgment. He drew the stopper from the file and let a couple of drops fall between her parted lips, and so she died as the man she had murdered had died a few moments before. He scattered the rest of the fluid over the thick carpet, dropped the stopper on the silken counterpane between them, closed the chilling fingers of her right hand over the file, drew her left arm out over the dead man's breast, and, after a moment's glance of mingled hate and genuine sorrow, left the room with silent steps and went back into the princess's room. For a few moments his eyes were everywhere, then at last they detected the little open panel in the end of the big cabinet and the silver box standing on the lower shelf. He looked into it, picked out a few of the bottles, and, after a little hesitation, said to himself, No, they are of no use to me. I have other weapons even deadlier than these. I had better leave them here. They will make very convenient evidence. And so he left them there and went back to his own room. He packed a portmanteau with just what was necessary for a journey, counted over his money, then lay down upon his bed to do a little hard thinking. He lay for nearly an hour with his closed eyes, looking mentally at the suddenly created problem from every possible point of view, then the strain of three sleepless nights and the brief but intense mental activity of that early morning told upon him at last. Not even his powers could struggle against the overwhelming desire to sleep, and his eyes closed. Again and again he opened them, and again and again they closed in spite of the utmost efforts of his will, and then sleep, deep and utterly oblivious, held him fast in its invisible but unbreakable bonds. When he finally woke, it was to see Harold Enstone with two other men in travelling clothes and an officer of police standing by his bedside, and hear Enstone's voice say in English, Good heavens, and the age of miracles hasn't passed after all. That's Jenna Halkine, the man that we thought was cremated three years ago. Hargreaves, tie his eyes up quick and don't let him look at you. We have had enough of his hypnotism, or whatever it is. As he spoke, Halkine struggled up into a sitting position. I've heard something of his hypnotism too, said Mr. Cantor, whipping out his revolver. We have got just a bit more poison of that sort than we can do within the States. But you just hypnotize that, and I reckon you will get a more conclusive funeral than you had last time. Now, Mr. Hargreaves. By this time, Hargreaves, for want of anything better, had picked up a towel, wrapped it in two or three times around Halkine's head at the risk of suffocating him, tied the two ends tight across his face, while Enstone was saying to the officer in German, This man, sir, is a convict escaped from an English prison. He was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to penal servitude for life. If it had been in France or Germany, the sentence would have been death. Perhaps you remember the famous case of Jenna Halkine? Ah, yes, said the officer, straightening himself up. Of course, I remember. It was a notable case, but I thought he escaped and was frozen to death, so police journals said, and also the English papers. So they did, replied Harold, 
but he did not die. You know who I am. Now I pledge my credit that this is the man, and I give him into your charge. Extradition will be applied for in the usual way, and if I am wrong, I will take care that you are held guiltless. Oh, Anstone, replied the officer, it is quite enough. Murder has been done in this house. Murder. And perhaps suicide, too. All within the house, excepting yourself and your friends who arrived with me after the crime was committed, will be held responsible to the law till the inquiries have taken place. You will make your statement in the proper form, and you can rest assured that this man will be held until all charges against him have been cleared up. End of chapter 31